Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. From the Writing Center of Bethel University, it's Election Shock Therapy. Pause your cartoons and grab your cereal. It's a Saturday morning podcast. <laughs> I can't wait. This is great. All right. Oh, so and, one of the things we're going to talk about today yeah. is Brexit and um, just a Saturday it morning like connection. A it does sound like a cereal, so you can eat your Brexit cereal. But also on Saturday morning, you will not be alone in having fun as you listen to us talk um, because the, the Parliament of Britain, for the first time since the Falklands War um, in 1982, will be meeting on a Saturday <gasps> um, to talk about Brexit. Wow. So we'll, we'll talk about that a little later uh, on this podcast. Will there be special provisions? Um, be... I, I don't know. I think they're not meeting until 930. So I'm, I think they're supposed to eat before they come. Okay. Traditional right. English breakfast. Yeah. I think they tea and everything. But I think it's like BYO, <laughs> traditional English breakfast. <laughs> TEB, I guess. So, yeah. Bring your own traditional yeah, English yeah. breakfast. Yeah, yeah. Something right. like that. Sure. So, All right. <laughs> there's, you know, have you, have you watched Parliament recently? Like, there's not room to be sitting there eating a traditional no. English breakfast. Like, you know, maybe a breakfast sandwich. Just, well, and actually, careful. this is, I feel weird. A little, weird. little, pr- little pret-a-manger. Just I was going to say, I, I've actually been near Parliament recently in the last couple wow. of years because mm-hmm. there's actually, because we often stop there near there for lunch. Yeah. There's not a lot of great places to eat right near Parliament. Not even like a quick, like a pret. Right. You've got to go a little bit of a ways. So if you are a member of Parliament listening to this on your way, get, don't <laughs> wait till you get all the way there because you're going to have to like come Grab back something out. on the way. Yeah, like six or seven blocks. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just and help hint yeah and you don't know what's open on a saturday morning too that's the other thing i think most things will be open yeah Yeah, hopefully before we get to this nonsense (laughs) um and we're gonna we're we're gonna sort of work our way from america further and further out so um (laughs) matt why don't you tell us a little bit about um what's been happening in the world of the impeachment inquiry of one donald j trump Oh, well, it seems like it's hard to keep up with, honestly, because it yeah, really is. Yes, it is. I mean, I'm supposed to do this for a living, right? I keep track of these things. We, yeah. we need a recapper. I know. So so basically, the the impeachment inquiry continues. There has not mm-hmm. been a formal vote in the House, and there probably will not be any time in the near future. Nancy Pelosi actually uh, released a statement. I think it was earlier this week. Maybe it was Monday uh, to that effect, said that they're not going to hold a formal impeachment vote. But... Uh, the impeachment train continues to um, move forward um, at some pace. Um, there's a number of committees that are still conducting investigations, especially the House Intelligence Committee, as well as the House Judiciary Committee. Um, and there's been mm-hmm. a series of hearings. Um, there's mo- more testimony from um, various officials, especially from the diplomatic community. Most of these hearings are happening behind closed doors, which is raising the ire of uh, some Republicans who want these um, fact-finding hearings to be more public. Right. Um, and we still don't know the identity of the original whistleblower or any of the other whistleblowers that have come forward. And it uh, remains an open question as to whether or not um, the, their identities will ever be revealed. Um, well, that does that it, matter? Who the, what the identity Well, is? I mean, so the identity of the original whistleblower could be interesting because they it is now known that this person is on friendly terms, has a friendship with one of the current Democratic presidential candidates. Okay. Um, okay. And so 
um, there's some question, and and because this person doesn't even have firsthand knowledge, the question is like, is there political mo- motivations sure. behind right. um, this particular right. whistleblower? But of course, there's other people that have expressed similar concerns, including some um, whistleblowers potentially with firsthand knowledge, mm-hmm. um, and that information mm-hmm. is slowly trickling out. <laughs> At the same time, I mean, I realize you could make political hay out of whatever, but. Yeah. Wouldn't we assume a lot of people in Washington would be on friendly terms with other people in Washington, regardless of where they are on <laughs> sure. the? So yeah, is yeah. that sure? Does that, that, mean that yeah, that's true. I mean, you could you can it could it could mean anything. Um, right. It could be something right. significant. We just don't know. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So back to you, Chris. So do we? Is this represent a significant revelation in the impeachment inquiry, or is this just more of an accumulation of the current story? I mean, the the facts continue to accumulate, and and there's there's you know weird, bizarre things going on. So um, the president's chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, had sort of an, an mm-hmm. uh oh moment um, recently in which um, he made some comments in a press conference uh, to the effect that um, that Donald Trump um, um, did withhold aid um, from the Ukraine, not necessarily related to um, sort of. Um, investigating the Bidens, but my understanding was uh, regarding um, the Ukrainian government investigating um, the Democratic National Committee server, yep. sort of their 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 email server um, where they do their communications. Um, and then he had to walk that back um, um, later on in the day. Mostly so, unsuccessfully. Yeah, mostly yeah. unsuccessfully. Um, and his legal team, Trump's legal team said, well, um, the chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, didn't consult with us first, um, right. so that doesn't look doesn't look good. Um, and so you get developments like right. that, in which yeah. you see that the Trump the Trump team seems to be in disarray, and they are having even a hard time um, with their messaging and their spinning. One of the narratives forming up around this question is whether or not Donald Trump made an explicit quid pro quo offer. Yes. And right. um, can we, should, do we need to take a minute to define what that means? Yes, um, we probably should. Uh, but a quid pro quo offers, if you do this for me, I will right. do this for you at a personalistic level. Right. Uh, and the question is, did Donald Trump offer to specifically unfreeze Ukrainian military aid in exchange for some kind of a prosecutorial investigation against one of his likely presidential challengers in Joe right. Biden th- right. via right. his son, Hunter? Right. Right. What Trump and his uh, cabinet have regularly argued is that there was no quid pro quo, although they were trying to root out corruption. And everyone is sort of bending over backwards to argue who is more anti-corrupt in this case. Joe Biden was also arguing on right. behalf of the Obama administration. The reason he was in Ukraine in the first place was to try to get a corrupt prosecutor removed from office. Right. And there is mm. some historical precedent to suggest that that part is accurate. Um, but. What is not clear to me, and I'm not a lawyer, I'm a political scientist, but <laughs> is whether or not there, if a quid pro quo existed or not is actually materially relevant in a dramatic way in an impeachment investigation. Obviously, if Donald Trump explicitly says, remove this, uh, you know, investigate my, my opponent and I will, I will free up military aid for you, certainly looks like an abuse of power. Right. But is that a right. necessary component for... Pelosi to get some Republicans to cross the aisle and vote for an impeachment or something like that. Not unless the ongoing investigations turn up something else okay. related to Trump's conduct with Ukraine. Um, I mean, it seems that that's mm-hmm. the most likely 
most fruitful, potential fruitful line of attack, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. That there is an explicit quid pro quo of that variety. Although to be clear, like, I mean, foreign relations, you can tell us, um, since you're the IR guy at the table, foreign relations is based off of quid pro quo. So it matters. So what matters is whether or not this was, as you said, done in exchange for some sort of personal, personal sort of political benefit. And this is actually about Mick Mulvaney in trouble because he was trying to make the case and he specifically said, Elections have consequences. Yeah. Get over it. Uh, this, there are plenty of quid pro quos in foreign policy. And then mm-hmm. – and basically admitted that there was this sort of uh, exchange of, um, you know, this, you know, foreign aid in exchange for investigation. But then then he backpedaled on this. And the difference here is that most quid pro quos in foreign policy are in the national interest right, of right, the two right. countries, exactly. not in the specific – electoral interest of one of the party's leaders, one of the country's leaders. Right. And it would even be fine to bring up a specific person, right, and say, like, we're particularly concerned about, like, here's an instance of corruption, right? The issue here is... Which is is the case of this prosecutor. Which is, yeah, which is... But the problem is, like, when you bring up somebody who's a political opponent, right, then it seems to be crossing the line saying, I'm using my power for my personal political gains instead of I'm using my power to advance the interests of the American people. Because, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Like, we do this all the time saying, you know, hey... Um, we're not going to give you this unless you agree to do these other set of things that we want done, right? I mean, that's all fine and good. That's you know business as usual. But when you're doing it for personal gains, that's a, that's yeah. a different. And I mean, and Trump in his statement in the Rose Garden, I guess it was a week or two ago, basically didn't seem to have any problems um, mm-hmm. with there being a quid pro right. quo. He said, mm-hmm. you know, like, well, sure, you know, we'll we'll invite China, we'll invite you know perhaps yeah. other countries to you know conduct. Right. investigations. Right. Um, so sometimes he seems to be okay with that. Other times he's made statements about, well, there is no quid pro quo. Right. So mm-hmm. even right. his messaging hasn't been uh, entirely uh, consistent, you might no. say. Which is a consistent theme of his presidency to have not very consistent messaging on certain things. So, And which might itself be a political strategy mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's not clear yeah. that the American people, for the most part, are tracking this story yep. with the level yep. of depth necessary to appreciate what might be an impeachable offense. Or yep. uh, an abuse of power in that way. Uh, I'm not sure that I, I'm not sure that it's fruitful at the at a public relations level to try to uh, to dive down into this or try to catch the Trump administration in a gotcha on quid pro quo. Yeah. I think, I think um, if the Democrats really want to investigate, they're better served, as you said, in trying to find um, offers of specific deals. Mm-hmm. Right. That's where I think Pelosi is being smart. I mean, just to give a little maybe historical perspective on this, right? So one of the things I was reading recently was an article on 538 about the Nixon, right? Um, it kind of, you know, which is the obvious comparison or one of the mm-hmm. obvious comparisons. And they were just remarking how, like, this took a long time to emerge. It really mm-hmm. took a long time to get to that point where you could actually get people on board with an impeachment. So I think in not holding a vote soon, not rushing this through, mm-hmm. right? There are certainly Democrats who want to rush it through. There seems to be no point in that other than like scoring, you know, points with particular constituencies on the left, right? If you're serious about this because you think the president's abused power, you've got to take time, do this right, build that evidence and make a case because it's a very serious case to take down a sitting president of the United States. It's literally never been pulled off to the fullest extent other than forcing Nixon out. Um, which even that didn't go through the whole process. So I think you have to, you know, think about how do you do this well um, in a way that actually helps the country as opposed to just, you know, makes the two camps get right sort of like reinforced and they're already their positions of polarization. Yeah, if impeachment and ultimately removal is actually going to go through, you have right. to have broad consensus. Yep. And we're not there yep. yet. So not we're somewhere close. we're somewhere in between yep. um, the level of consensus for uh, Bill Clinton removal, yep. which was mm-hmm. not significant enough, and yep. um, Nixon's removal, yep. which 
um, by the end of that period was yep. very high. We're, we're somewhere mm-hmm. in between, yep. and it's an open question as to whether or not the Democrats are going to be able to ultimately right. accumulate enough evidence to convince right. the American people um, that Trump actually needs to be removed from office. Currently, um, you can look at sort of Republican approval of right. Donald Trump, and it has basically remained flat since he's been yep. elected, yep. if not tip, ticked upward slightly, mm-hmm. um, even mm-hmm. despite even despite um, the news that has come out over the past right. couple of months. And so, and so, and that approval rating is, is like mid eighties. Um, mm-hmm. And so you're going to have to, they're going to have to peel off enough, um, you know, Republican voters, um, people right. who identify Republican in order to ultimately encourage enough Republicans in the house and especially mm-hmm. in the Senate to peel off. And yeah. that's a really tall order in the Senate, especially. Yeah, I think that's really astute because even if um, a lot of independents swing towards impeachment, you unless you get uh, bedrock Republicans to start to drift away from Trump, right. you're not going to get um, House Republicans to abandon uh, to abandon Trump. It's, just, it's not going to happen, or yeah. and probably most Senate Republicans too. Right. Yeah. I mean, and and you're going to need you're going to need a lot of Republicans because again, yeah. to remove Trump, you need a two thirds majority um, voting to in remove the in the Senate. Right. Right. Um, and uh, right now, um, the Republicans control the Senate by several votes. And so yeah. you'd have to get a substantial number of them peeling off. Right. Um, Assuming all the Democrats vote for it, you'd have to have 20, which mm-hmm. is right, which, which is a lot. Um, right. And those would have to be 20 Republicans who basically think that there are so many Democrats and independents and a few Republicans in their states right. who are going to vote them out of office that right. they would that right. they would right. flip. And that's a pretty tall order. I mean, yep. right. You're pretty much there on the Democrats. Independents are swinging towards impe- in favorability for impeachment, but you're right. Republicans haven't moved on this, yeah, and right. that's going to probably keep Donald Trump in office. Probably, yeah. and I, yeah. I think you know there's enough Republican senators that are getting fed up enough with Trump, especially in this whole Syria thing. Perhaps mm-hmm. we can talk right. about that. That if there was enough support in their states to remove Trump, they would maybe they would maybe go for it. Right? You pull the trigger right. on that, Trump right. gets removed, mm-hmm. Pence becomes your nominee. He's going to have a better shot, right? Um, mm-hmm. Ultimately, but there's just simply a not. Not yep. enough Republican voters who are going to go for that because Donald yep. Trump is still popular um, amongst them. Yep. So I want to talk about one more thing, one, uh, a word much hated by many political scientists of the American political persuasion. I want to talk about momentum. <sighs> There's a feedback. Can, can you, before you, you get into this, can you explain sure. why momentum would be a dirty word? I don't. I don't. I, I'm not familiar. Well, with actually, that. Let, let me throw this over. It's so, not dirty. Well, no, but I mean, like, like, like depends how you say it. Momentum. Wow. <laughs> uh, so, the media speaks regularly about the concept of momentum. Oh, Elizabeth Warren yes. has momentum. Bernie Sanders is regaining momentum. Bernie Sanders and his new heart stent are getting momentum. You know. <laughs> It's the heart stand is more popular than he is. <laughs> it is younger. Actually, it probably is. Um, it is younger. In all seriousness, Sam, the, mm. the concept of momentum is much maligned amongst political scientists because it's overused by the media. Okay. Oh, and so, yeah. so uh, oftentimes when polls are relatively static, when the actual measurables of any particular candidate seem to be comparatively fixed or at least on a particular trajectory that isn't arcing upward in any kind mm-hmm. of way. When the media speaks about momentum, what they really are speaking about is the extent to which they themselves are covering each other covering some story. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I mean, the pejorative would be a tempest in a teapot. And I'm mm-hmm. curious to know 
If, however, in the case of something like a very complex story, like the impeachment investigation, whether there's um, a, a, a bi-directional feedback loop, if all of a sudden yeah. it becomes clear that Republicans really aren't shifting on impeachment, then the media reports, well, some media sources would, or might report, well, momentum for impeachment appears to be faltering, which is then picked up by other media outlets to report about the lack of momentum, uh, the stalling out of an impeachment investigation, does that then actually go full circle and influence some American voters and some American you know, mm, public opinion mm -hmm. to say, eh, I guess this impeachment thing really is as much as we thought it was. Right. right. And, the, and it actually becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yep. Conversely, if more and more things come to light and the media says, oh, there's you know, support for impeachment's picking up, right. other people who aren't following this well look around and say, oh, I guess maybe impeachment is right. kind of a thing we need to be concerned with now. And it actually becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. In mm. that way, is momentum a real thing right i mean because media <laughs> media site i mean it'd be interesting to look and see if there's any literature on this and in, in, in political science but it i it does seem to be true that i mean the media um news cycle does create its own sort of political reality right. Right. which then can become actual reality itself right. because people have to you know people trying to make sense of a very complex situation and the best way to do that is to read a few media articles that are interpreting it Mm -hmm. um, and when you read those articles, you you begin to adopt that view. Um, and then once it, you get a critical mass of people adopting that view of reality, then it sort of becomes reality. And people right. accept that's actually what's happening. And then people respond to that reality. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, um, just what you were saying about the media creating their own reality. Like in, I think it was in the 2015, 16 <laughs> cycle, um, I was teaching American government here actually. And at the time, and um, John Stewart had this great piece where he was just like showing how all these different outlets, like reporting on Hillary Clinton about to announce her campaign, mm -hmm. and they're like feverishly like following her car driving <laughs> and just getting all excited and you know just all like run they're running after it and all this sort of thing. And he's like, "Okay, guys, it's a car driving. Like, slow down, mm -hmm. calm down, right? Like, this is not that big a deal." So it's it's that idea. I mean, they do sometimes like just get obsessed with it and then it's like oh because somebody else is there following her car we better be there following her car because right. we daren't miss this like sort of news opportunity that really isn't a news opportunity right so i think that's that's an issue the other i mean thing that comes to mind when you talk about this whole momentum issue is so in that fall of 16 i taught parties and elections here and um taught a book called the gamble by sides and vavrick who are mm -hmm. we're looking at the 2012 election so we were using that as kind of an interesting comparison which turned out to be very different but anyway um <laughs> right so um but in that i mean they did talk about sort of the, how the different republican candidates got momentum right at different points in the race that turned out to be in the long run like completely insignificant i mean like you know so our own Michelle Bachman from Minnesota, um, and you know Herman Cain, if you remember him. Oh, I do. Uh, right, like in his great ads. I mean, like, and who else? Um, Rick Santorum, or somebody else who had momentum at one point. Like, oh, they have momentum; they're gaining, and then it turns out to be this sort of you know ephemeral thing, right? Where it's just like they had their week or so in the sun, and everyone's like, "Wait, what? Why are we thinking about nominating Herman Cain, Michelle Bachman, Rick Santorum? No, yeah. right?" And New Gingrich, back, right? New Gingrich. That's right. New Gingrich had a moment. Um, yeah. There's somebody else too, I think, but yeah, yeah. Bad. I mean, that, that's a good point, Andy. I mean, I think you have to think about what what is what is the point of news. Mm -hmm. News is about <laughs> reporting what's new, and if there's yeah. nothing new, the new right. has to be generated, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I mean, the media, I mean, you can't report on sameness. You have to mm -hmm. report on a change, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And so you have to find where the change exists, you know, yep. where it exists, yep. and and you know, and so the the slightest deviation yep. is reported as news, even if mm -hmm. in the long run it turns out to be insignificant. Yep. 
Well, guys, I think it's time for our listeners to uh, refill their French press coffee or maybe pour themselves a freshly squeezed glass of orange juice. Okay. And it's time, or actually, <laughs> perhaps a spot of Earl Grey tea. A spot of Earl Grey tea. Can we talk tea? Brexit? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, baked beans and fried eggs together. That's Oof. That's, that's yeah. going to so sit I, in your I stomach say, for a while. I have to I say, I prefer before, bacon and cinnamon rolls myself. Yeah. Uh, but that's you know, black not the British way, man. Um, so so I look British. Eight years ago, eight <laughs> and a half years ago, um, when Prince William and Kate were getting married. Boy, you're going um, back in a deep yeah. dive here. <laughs> no, we, when they were getting married, yeah. So um, says something about my wife and I. But we got up at six o'clock in the morning. You got the commemorative plates to watch. No, we oh. didn't get the commemorative plates. We were poor graduate students, so no commemorative plates. But we did get up at six in the morning to watch the wedding live, um, and nice. we made ourselves a British breakfast, an English breakfast, and so we had. You know, baked beans and eggs and bacon. They weren't true rashers and, you know, all the other things you need to have. So. Okay. I have two questions, one of which yes. I should know the answer to and one of which I don't. So I'll, I'll confess just ignorance. I, I'm a foodie. I should know this. What is the difference between a rasher and a bacon and bacon? I don't know that there actually is all that much difference. Okay. Really. Yeah. My, I always yeah. thought it's that a, a rasher was simply a quantity of bacon. That's just, I mean, I think it's just what they call the bacon, but I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I don't. I thought like, it was like, and it wasn't something I could afford ham, to explore. A rasher yeah, of yeah. bacon. Like, yeah, and then you have like tomatoes too. You have tomatoes the breakfast. I'm trying to think what yeah. else is part of it. Toast. Um, but yeah, um, it's good. Except the beans. I, I don't believe cynicism. Beans. Yeah, yeah. Also, <laughs> and if you travel, if you travel around the British yeah. Isles when you go to Scotland and have a traditional Scottish breakfast, it's the same thing. <laughs> and if you go to Ireland and have a traditional Irish breakfast, it's, it's the, the same, same thing. thing. Yeah. Don't tell them that. Yeah, absolutely. There's a distinction in the way they cook the beans. I did go to Wales, but we didn't have breakfast, so I don't know. It's probably the same thing. You just you just abstained or you weren't there for breakfast? Oh, we weren't there for breakfast. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's how much respect they showed Wally Wales. They didn't stay long It's more of a breakfast. day trip. <laughs> and not even a full day apparently because no What a terrible tourism slogan, Sam. <laughs> Wales. It's more it's a day of a trip. day trip. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mulberry travels. All right. All right let's, let's talk a little bit about Brexit. So the yeah. reason we're bringing this up is Brexit, if, if you are just sort of um, – culturally aware of international politics feels like it's been going on for a couple of years because in fact it's been going on for a couple of years yeah uh back like at uh, three, and when we say a couple we actually mean three and a half yes at this point, uh, so. shortly before the trump election yeah. uh the british voters in referendum narrowly uh um, voted to leave yep. the european yep. union this was a shock to everyone including those who had ordered the referendum who did who not had, want that to happen who, bas- who didn't want that to happen but basically ordered the referendum as part of a deal to keep a coalition partner inside their yep. their government and much to their chagrin and many others in 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 Britain the referendum passed and right. so for the last three and a half years Britain has been through a negotiating process to go about leaving the European Union this is uh to many international economists interpretation um an enormous uh, own goal. Um, this mm-hmm. will likely damage the British economy. It, yep. If it, to make to, the the point that Boris Johnson, who is pro Brexit, the current British uh, Prime Minister, um, is that it would it would grant Britain more autonomy over its right. own affairs, specifically affairs in terms of immigration, yep. tariffs, uh, economy, those sorts of things. But it, it's um, it's very complicated, and uh, there are a number of of exit issues that need to be resolved. There have been at least four separate deals negotiated between two British prime ministers, first Theresa May and now Boris Johnson, Mm -hmm. to leave the European Union under a kind of managed exit. And in all four cases, those deals have been voted down by parliament. 
for various kinds of reasons. Parliament's all over the place on this. The Liberals um, and the Labour Party don't have any strong incentives to actually see Brexit take place. They prefer mm-hmm. not happen at all. And they certainly don't want to give a conservative uh, prime minister uh, a victory right. on getting Brexit right. done. At the same time, they really, really don't want a hard crash out Brexit, meaning they don't have an agreement and they just leave right. and suffer an enormous series of, conse- of economic consequences as a result. On the other hand, you do have these narrow parties that are part of a coalition government with the conservatives, who, by the way, don't have a majority in parliament. Right, right. And so they need coalition partners. And those revolve around more specific issues. For example, the current plan negotiated by Boris Johnson would involve a rather large uh, lump sum payment in the order of billions, I think somewhere around 40 billion pounds, uh, to the European Union to pay for British Brexit. It would also keep the British, uh, the Britain would have to agree to abide by a number of EU regulations, at least for a period of time. These would be right. things on like agricultural issues, um, consumer protection issues, right. those sorts of things. And most importantly, and this is the really important part, a customs union would, or yeah, a, cust- a customs control would be set up in the Irish Sea. Right. So essentially, Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom, but on the island of Ireland, but not part of the country of Ireland, right. would begin accepting tariffs on behalf of the European Union for goods coming from the United Kingdom with the intent to pass into Ireland. If that sounds incredibly complicated, it's because it is, and is part of a an enormous right. effort to keep from putting up a strict hard border between Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland, which was one of the issues that led to the 30-year insurgency known right. as the Irish Troubles. And so this um, this is really complex. And the Democratic Ulster Party – or Democratic Unionist Party, excuse me. Yeah. Democratic Unionist Party, um, uh, which is a coalition partner – of the conservatives whose votes Boris Johnson desperately needs to get this deal passed have said they oppose it because it is segregating off Northern Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom. He's going to have to convince them to switch their votes to try to get this passed. Yeah, or somehow hope that enough labor people peel off. But yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a huge problem. It's such a mess. I mean, because if you, if you don't, if, like if you create a hard border, you run the risk of returning to violence and I, on the, the island of Ireland, right? But then the problem is, if you don't, you know, if you if you do kind of this sort of solution, um, you just run into all these these complications. I mean, it's just going to be it's it's a it mess. is a mess, and well, it's not. I mean, the bottom line is like a lot of it's a lot of this deal is not that different than what got rejected, right? I mean, it's, no, there's, there's this a few is basically May's deal with a few, a few minor modifications. Yeah. yeah, and then the Ireland zone, right? But that's I mean right. that's so problematic, right? Like the way they're trying to 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 do that. So right now the the vote estimates are that it's right around, you know, 300 300 like so 304 300 against. He needs 320 to pass it. Yep. Um and it's not clear where those 20 are coming from. I mean like, you know, because if, if the DUP against it, that's a big problem for him. Can he come up with Andy a side payment? This is what we would think of in American politics, yeah. like a log rolling kind of strategy yeah. or a reciprocity kind of strategy where the DUP would get something else in exchange for biting their lips and voting for this Brexit deal. Man, I just don't know. I mean, this is a big deal for them. Like, I, 
I'm skeptical. And, and they feel, I think, a little betrayed because he went and negotiated this, you know, more or less behind their backs, right? I mean, he's mm -hmm. trying to say he didn't, but he did. Um, well, he tried and, to prorogue parliament in an effort to negotiate. Yeah, and so he's just trying to get, I mean, he's trying to get around them. And so it's basically, like, these are the people you've been relying on to support your government to keep it in power. And now you've just negotiated a deal that they find completely unacceptable. I'm not sure what you, what do you trade them for that, right? Like, um, that's what's not clear to me. So I think, I mean, I think his better option, honestly, at this point is, you, you get some people from labor on board. You hope that happens. And I'm just not sure labor will do it. I mean, right. um, this is like, you know, it's like roughly the equivalent of Donald Trump hoping, um, you know, that enough Democrats come and bail him out on a deal right. when, of course, they're gleefully just delighting the idea that he might like have a big public embarrassment. Um, and that's about how this is. I mean, labor is not fond of Boris Johnson. And one thing to keep in mind here for those of you who are listening to us who are, you know, mostly focused on American politics, the whipping within British parties is significantly stronger yeah. than the Democratic and Republican whipping right. in the American Congress. So the chances of defection. <laughs> Maybe we, we should, should probably define whipping. whipping. <laughs> I was going to say, because this is not, I think our, our viewers at this point are watching the theme. They Fine. literally whip Matt, people in what's Britain? whipping? <laughs> American 101. See, you get the strand of leather. Stop <laughs> <laughs> oh, that um, whipping, Matt. <laughs> um, no, no whipping, what's whipping, whipping? Um, in a sort of political party context and legislatures is where the party leaders sort of whip their mem members into falling into uh, line, falling into right. line, and voting with the party as a block, so the party yeah. can put up sort of a unified front, so they can maximize their their yeah. voting power. So the vast majority of Democrats vote with other Democrats the vast majority of the time. Yes, and especially it's, nowadays, it's up to the party yeah. itself to make sure that Democrats continue to vote with other Democrats and Republicans mm -hmm. to vote with other Republicans. And we actually have a person in the House and Senate in both parties who's called the whip. Right. right. I mean, that's their job right. is to. Go find out who's voting with the party. Try to get people to do it and try to be aware of people who are not going to do it mm -hmm. um, so that you don't get embarrassed by bringing up a vote when you should have, be able to win it. And then, oops, 10 people voted against us in our and, own party. And what I was suggesting is there are plenty of times where we get relatively conservative Democrats, yep. relatively moderate Republicans who right. defect and go yep. to the other side yep. on specific issues, right. oftentimes on regional issues. We saw this much more prominently in the yeah. 1960s on civil rights. We had the Dixiecrats, these uh, Democrats who essentially voted a, apart from progressive right. northern right. Democrats right. on civil rights issues for regional yep. cultural reasons. Yeah. The whipping in the British parties tends to be much more unified for yep. kind of structural reasons. However, this has gotten even harder for Boris Johnson because he recently kicked out 23 people from his own party. Um, and they're still there. They're still sitting as MPs. They're still conservatives in terms of what they stand for. But they're people he's put out of his caucus. So that gets a lot harder to whip them. Yeah. So um, what, what's more likely at this point? Um, you know, MPs from Northern Ireland jumping on board the Brexit plan to avoid a hard Brexit or people from labor joining in this particular Brexit plan that the EU has um, Relying on secondary source material here, the mood in London is reasonably optimistic now. They feel like this is the closest they've gotten yeah. to actually getting Brexit approved. Momentum. It's, mo <laughs> it's momentum. They get momentum. Uh, but the, I, the reason why seems to be is there's a thought that uh, – this is a deal that while by far from perfect, you're going to get some labor folks who are just going to say, this is uh, this is terrible, but a, a hard Brexit would be catastrophic. Yep. Right. Yep. And I, we'll, we'll get some defections. That seems I, to be the thought. And I think the big, it, the big difference between this vote and the ones with Theresa May is that Theresa May had campaigned for Remain. She was a person who did not want a hard Brexit. She didn't really want Brexit at all, but she felt like she was, should respect the will of the people, which – 
I think is a, a debatable point as a leader. But anyway, that because that, when they're making these kind of how do you feel about authoritarianism moves, coming from our Senate president? It's not authoritarianism, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> this is like you're responsible. She's elected. I mean, they can vote her down in an election, but sure. but I think you sure, know, sure. like respecting an advisory referendum when it's going to be really bad for your country is yeah. is a questionable leadership move. But in any case, she did that. Um, but she all that to say, she was somebody who is clearly at all costs, wanting to avoid hard Brexit. And everyone knew that, right? The Labor knew, Party knew that. And so that meant that if you voted down her deal, you could feel reasonably confident that her move wasn't going to be like, well, fine, we'll just have a hard Brexit, right? Mm-hmm. With Boris Johnson, he's been very clear, and, and everyone believes him because he was a Leave you know, v- campaigner, right? I want a hard Brexit. I'd be happy to have a hard Brexit. That's just mm-hmm. fine with me. I don't care. Um, let's do it. Let's just get out, and we'll figure it out. Right, and that's that is kind of scary to people outside the Conservative Absolutely. Party, um, in, in especially in the Labour Party. So I, that's why I do wonder if some of them are going to say, you know what, we hate to give him this. However, we hate the idea of a hard Brexit more. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sure there's a lot of soul searching going on tonight, and it'll be interesting to see how things go down tomorrow. True. We uh, we need to transition because yep. we're running out of time here. Yes. But um, one of the biggest humanitarian crises in the world right now is the situation happening in Syria. Mm-hmm. And it's being exacerbated by recent foreign policy decisions of the United States and Turkey. Yep. And I want to just give our listeners a very brief primer on what's happening mm-hmm. and um, and then see if you guys think that there's any, any – uh, how this reasonably ends. Mm. So since uh, – very very brief, could either start back in the 1990s. <laughs> it could start um, back in the uh, – in 2012. But uh, Syria has been racked yeah. by, by ongoing civil violence uh, since the Arab Spring movement, 2011-2012. Right. Uh, that violence is mostly resolved through the process of, of Bashar al-Assad holding on to power. And even though the mm-hmm. United States – and Saudi Arabia and Jordan and other uh, Sunni Arab states have mm-hmm. really backed the resistance against Bashar al-Assad. It appears that he's consolidated power and is going to hold on to power. Right. You may recall that Donald Trump even uh, launched airstrikes against Bashar two airfields in Syria yeah. uh, all the way back in 2017 um, uh, in response to Assad using chemical weapons on his own people. Right. This is not a nice guy. No. Going back to 1991, the United States has had an ongoing relationship and a close relationship with the Kurdish people. The Kurds are ethnically separate from both Sunnis and Arabs in the Middle East. Uh, They represent um, some diversity of religious orientations, but Mm -hmm. share a common ethnicity, common culture, linguistic similarities. And they are one of the largest people groups in the world to not have their own uh, uh, territory, which they govern. Right. They are spread in an area that roughly is across northern Syria, southern, southeastern Turkey, southwestern Iran, and northern Iraq. Yeah. And they have been a U.S. ally since the first Gulf War. Uh, the United States mm-hmm. supported the first Gulf War. Saddam Hussein used chemical weapons against the Kurds. The United States uh, enforced a no-fly zone and a belated attempt to try to protect the Kurdish territories and has mm-hmm. been equipping the Kurds with military uh, equipment and with CIA presence uh, since that time. Right. Uh, the Kurds themselves have a very pro-American position, at least until recently. The United States has had about a 1,000 troops in northern Syria embedded with the Kurds holding on to an area, uh, one of the last areas of Syria not controlled by Bashar al-Assad. So it's essentially an autonomous Kurdish region. The Turks hate this Mm -hmm. because since the 1970s, a Kurdish militant group known as the PKK 
has mm-hmm. been launching intermittent attacks into Turkey on behalf of a pro-Kurdish independence movement. Mm-hmm. The, the Turks allege that the Kurds are using essentially uh, porous borders between Syria and Turkey and Iraq and Iran to uh, launch attacks into Turkey and then flee back into Syria or flee back into Iraq. Donald Trump, two weeks ago, made the announcement that he would be withdrawing American soldiers from Syria. This amounted to a green light on for the Turks to begin a military operation, which they have long stated was their intention to do so, right. to create a safe zone, a safe barrier, uh, buffer zone between Turkey and the Kurds in Syria. Right. And they did exactly what they promised they would do. So as American soldiers pulled out, uh, the Turks launched an artillery campaign mm-hmm. followed by a ground invasion and right. pushed into the Turks into Syria. There are now actively Turkish soldiers on the ground in Syria, in the northern part of Syria, setting up what they propose to be a 50-mile buffer zone uh, from mm-hmm. the Turkish border in and are essentially pushing the Kurds out. The Kurds are fighting back, but this is not an even fight. Turkey has a large, right. capacious, effective military. It is yep. a NATO member. That becomes important in a second. Right. And um, even as the U.S. soldiers were departing from, from, from Syria, uh, they were being bracketed by Turkish artillery fire. So basically the Turks were firing to the east and west of Turkish or American soldiers as they were departing, which is a real slap in the face of a, a, a technical military ally. Right. And since that time, uh, Mike Pence has traveled to Turkey to meet with uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the increasingly authoritarian leader of Turkey, <laughs> yeah. uh, to try to negotiate a ceasefire. He did not get a ceasefire, to be clear. The United States is calling it a ceasefire. It is not a ceasefire. The Turkish mil- Turkish government has agreed to a five-day pause in their military right. operation, which they have promised to recommence, um, and giving five days basically for the, to, for the Kurds to flee for their lives out of this buffer zone. In the midst of this agreement, I have to read this because it is amazing. <laughs> uh, Donald Trump sent the oh, yeah. following letter to Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey. This is an official White House letter. It was released to the public. I'll be performing the role of Donald Trump. With a voice? No. Ah. His Excellency, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, President of Turkey, Ankara. Dear Mr. President, let's work out a good deal, exclamation point. You don't want to be responsible for slaughtering thousands of people, and I don't want to be responsible for destroying the Turkish economy, and I will. I've already given you a little sample with respect to Pastor Brunson. I have worked hard to solve some of your problems. Don't let the world down. You can make a great deal. General Malzum is willing to negotiate with you, and he is willing to make concessions that they would never have made in the past. I am confidentially enclosing a copy of his letter to me just received. History will look favorably um, if you get this done the right and humane way. It will look upon you forever as the devil if good things don't happen. Don't be a tough guy. Don't be a fool! Exclamation point. I will call you later, Donald J. Trump. Wow. Did, Let a, me did be a Turkish cl- copy of The Art of the Deal come with this? Let me be clear. <laughs> this is the weirdest inter-head of state communication I have ever read in public discourse, and it's not close. No, that's this not. is profoundly aberrant in international diplomacy. That is. Imagine all the other letters he might have written to other heads of state. Most people, they when they like. saw this, did not believe that it was right. real. Yeah. What do we make of this? 
it's so strange. I mean, and I, and <sighs> I think it, in that sense, like it, it goes with his communication does. more generally, right? I mean, not just, but it is disturbing that that there's no like bureaucratic control over what letters are being sent because this is the kind of thing that any State Department employee should be like, you can't send that letter. But that's what's worth noting here is this letter would have passed through multiple hands to simply be released to the public to say nothing of the fact that this letter must have been translated by some poor person into Turkish. Right, because Donald Trump does not speak Turkish. (laughs) We we can only hope that the Turkish version is different. (laughs) Yeah. But but presumably somebody from Erdogan's staff could translate this version into Turkish as well. So um, that probably wouldn't help matters. The only thing I can come up with, which is even remotely Sorry. reasonable, is that this letter is not for Erdogan's eyes. That Donald Trump is feeling the heat from uh, domestic Republicans, yeah. people yeah. like Lindsey Graham, who believe right. that uh, that Trump is essentially letting down our Kurdish allies by letting them be pushed out of uh, out of northern yep. Syria, and he is sending this letter ostensibly to Erdogan as a bad cop. So that right. uh, so that hawkish Republicans like Graham are assuaged that Trump is taking a hard stand against the Turks, and it's not clear that that's working. No, not even close. Yeah. but but that's no. the only way I could come up with that this that this extremely odd personalistic yeah. letter makes any kind of sense. Because this is like us trying to shame Putin into you know behaving himself in Ukraine, right? Right. We remember how that was, right? I mean. Um, so yeah, I mean, Trump realizes he made he made a mistake, um, and he's trying to backpedal. Yeah, and backpedal only in the sense that he's trying to make himself look better, not right. that he's actually trying to fix the problems he created, right? Like, um, unless he actually believes Erdogan's going to listen to that. Yeah, I mean, when you have to start resorting to threats, you've already lost, right? Yep. Well, yeah. and and in truth, the United States went, went the opposite way. We're not punishing the Turkish economy at all. No. One of the uh, concessions the United States made in exchange for this five-day pause in the Turkish military operation was to remove sanctions on Turkey. Yeah. So we we have no economic uh, punishment on them at all whatsoever yeah. now, and we bought the, the Kurds five days to get yeah. out of Dodge. Although I and think Congress is reconsidering that. Mm-hmm. They're actually in the process of considering mm-hmm. what sorts of sanctions. Congress, in a fairly bipartisan affair, it. condemned uh, the House condemned Donald Trump's uh, abandonment of the Kurds with only 60 uh, members of Congress voting against the condemnation. 360-some wow. voted in favor yeah. of condemnation. Which is an impressive bipartisan moment yep, in, this, yep. in this time, right? I mean, it, and it says something about how, how significant this is. And I mean, but it makes sense, right? You think about it. We've been backing the Kurds through, you know, multiple Republican and Democratic administrations since 91, right? Also and so suggests, this is a huge shift. It also know? suggests that House Republicans don't think this is a voter issue. Right. No. Which yeah. they're almost certainly right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times foreign policy issues, um, unless there's significant yeah. American lives at stake, yeah. um, you know, don't really matter. And right. so yeah. Republicans, you know, senators can feel like they can come out swinging against yeah. Trump on this because it's not going to hurt them a lot. However, it is interesting, a polling recently um, on what the public thinks about the withdrawal from Syria. Apparently, right. um, you've seen the vast majority of Republicans actually approve mm-hmm. of Donald Trump's pulling out of Syria. And that just, seems, interesting. that just seems to me to be motivated reasoning. Well, well I, yeah, I've already exactly. decided I like Donald Trump, so whatever he yeah, does yeah, yeah. is fine by me. Sure. Right. That's a lot of it. But right. I mean, it, maybe you can tell us some, give us some examples, Chris, but this is not the first time where we've um, walked right into and actually created a foreign policy crisis because the president is being motivated by certain political reasons. Ostensibly, in this case, President Trump is uh, <laughs> trying to fulfill his campaign promise right, right, to right. Um, pull 
U.S. Trip, troops um, out of foreign yeah. countries um, and to end these needless wars, as he right. puts it. I would actually say that foreign policy is one of the areas where Trump has displayed some of the some of his greatest levels of ideological consistency. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Trump yeah. really has come from an older version of uh, the Republican Party, yep. one very skeptical of international engagement. Yep. And he has long he campaigned on getting the United States out of foreign wars. And that has run him afoul of more hawkish uh, Republicans mm -hmm. like uh, um, the late Senator John McCain and like Lindsey Graham now. Right. Uh, right. And like even some of his own advisors uh, yeah. and former advisors, Dirk, uh, um, Brett McGurk um, yeah, has yeah. come out in uh, in opposition mm -hmm. to this mm -hmm. uh, strongly. Yeah. General uh, 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 Jim Mattis took his first big swing at Donald Trump over the weekend right. over this affair as well and oddly yeah. invoked Meryl Streep whilst doing it. Uh <laughs> And uh, oh, for real, I'm not oh, kidding. Um, and uh, yeah, so this is um, this what? is an area in which there's daylight between uh, yep. hawkish internationalist Republicans and populist um, isolationist Republicans like Donald Trump. Well, to be clear, you can you know, not be hawkish at all, but think this is a horrible decision, right? right? Sure. Um, yep. And and you have you know people you know who are both hawkish and not hawkish think that this is deeply. I mean, it was predicted that if you do this, Mr. President. Mm -hmm. The result will be that Turkey will invade Syria right, uh, and right, will bomb the right. Kurds. And everyone was saying that, and he went ahead and did it. Yep, yep. And that's exactly what happened. I think this is this is a consequence of Trump losing um, certain advisors. Um, yep. So I think um, if if uh, John Bolton was still his national security advisor, this would not have happened, or John Bolton right. would have resigned. Whatever you make, John Bolton, Bolton himself has been very critical of this decision. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. So. Um, so him losing these advisors, right. um, I think, has meant that there is even less of a check than there used to be on the president making yeah. these sorts of decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to come back to a point you raised earlier, Chris, I mean, with the NATO connection, right? I mean, like, this puts us in a very odd position, yes. right? Because we are oh, yeah. NATO allies with Turkey, right? And so if... If Turkey and Syria get into it over this, right? I mean, we could find ourselves fighting against which, by the way, I Turkey failed to mention, the Kurds, very right? much I mean, could happen because the Kurds, having been abandoned by the Americans, reached out to Bashar al-Assad, yeah. who was there? more than happy to make a deal with them. And now Syrian army forces are moving up into northern Syria, yep. into towns previously held by the Kurds, yep. essentially yep. to directly face off with the Turkish military. Yeah. Yep. Anyway. Now, the Turkish military way more capacious than the Syrian military, and that's not a fair fight. The Turks would win that fight in, uh, going yeah. away. But in a shooting war, Turks could make a case for NATO involvement on behalf of other NATO partners, right. including the United States of America. Right, right. So, <sighs> yes. Isn't international politics fun, guys? Oh, yeah. Take our course. Nightmare. <laughs> um, it's Friday mm. here. It's, it's Saturday where you are. Um, hopefully you're it's like time travel or something. Exactly. No, hopefully it's... your cinnamon rolls are fresh out of the oven and um, you're ready it to start seems... a nice fall day. Maybe I feel like <clears throat> this episode was long enough that it started at breakfast and we've moved into brunch. Yeah, at this yeah. Point, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. You know what I'm feeling, Sam? What's that? How about like a nice trip to the pumpkin patch? Some it sounds apple, nice. Some apple cider, some yeah. donuts. <laughs> Let me get a nice That nice sounds pumpkin. delightful. Yeah. Mm. I'll join you. Thanks, man. You guys want to come too? Uh, yeah, sure. I'm just talking food is making me really hungry. It was almost that time. <laughs> Let's go remedy that. On behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, you've been listening to Election Shock Therapy. You can always get a hold of us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com or at live or channel 3900 um, at gmail.com. That's right. And subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe to our podcast. Um, if you listen to this, 
thank you so much for listening. Just do us the extra favor and subscribe too. Tell your it friends. means you don't miss anything that we're putting out, and um, it really helps um, helps prove that we're doing something useful here. And and if you like this but want something completely different, go back one episode in the feed. It's an episode of Tweet Victory about vomiting at a Lizzo concert. I kid you not. Oh. Wow. Wow. Lizzo, yes. Vomiting, no. And, yeah. I'll be, and that on that note, wow. I'm going to sign off and say on behalf of my friends, <laughs> thanks for listening and go Royals. Royals.